Good morning. I'm Michael Loney. Today we'll be reading from parts of Obadiah, which can be found in page 772 in your pew Bible. Again, we're going to be reading through Obadiah, page 772 in your pew Bible. We'll start in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning, concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. Now skip down to verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that the strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in this day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, I'm eager to jump into that and explain what the heck is going on in Obadiah. Uh, one of the early church fathers said it is as difficult as it is short. It's actually the shortest book in the Old Testament, um, and yet there's a lot there for us, um, so I want to jump in. As, as we do, though, real quick, let me just uh, make one other announcement. Just permit me this. Um, to prep for that members meeting that is next Sunday, uh, we will talk about elders for a while and trying to serve you and, to be really honest, um, cut out some sermons uh, to not talk about it a whole lot. From the pulpit, we released about three hours of videos. There's maybe 13 videos 
which if you know me, that's not surprising at all, but um, try to answer some questions on there. We're all at different places when it comes to church and experience and leadership and preferences and things that we um, desire, things that we're afraid of. And so thought to go through and just name like some different questions on there. So uh, what's the difference between an elder and a deacon? What's the role of women in the life of our church? What, is, what do we think about power when it comes to the way a church is organized? Those kinds of questions are on there. So they're all up to date. Uh, I think there's, again, there's 13 of them, I think. There will be one edit to one of them, the one on um, why only male elders. I wanted just to spend a little more time on one of the passages. So it's already like 37 minutes long. I think I added like 10 more minutes to it. So that one is an entire sermon. Uh, so uh, if you want to, uh, just to engage there a little bit, if you're curious or you have questions, just want to point you to those. They are on our website under the resource tab. Uh, there's an elders video uh, link there. And then you can just watch them at your leisure. Uh, maybe hydrate before you do because some of them are long. But I um, want to point you that way. Okay, let me just pray for us real quick. Uh, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, we... Um, acknowledge this church is yours. Even to talk about elders um, is to talk about um, a person or people that you have put under even your authority to lead your people. So we just want to start by saying uh, you are the king. You are the Lord. This is your church. Uh, the people addressed in this book belong to you. History is yours. The future is yours. Uh, our present situation is yours. Everything that happened this week, you know about about you are Lord over and you promised to help and to be with us. So would you now with all that we're bringing into the room from this last week uh, for some in your presence. Uh, so would you would you be with us now? We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, hey, with the, the Thanksgiving table on your mind, um, I don't know if you have siblings or not. I'm a little brother. Uh, I have an older brother who's four years older than me. Um, in so many ways, he's my hero. His name is John. He's also a pastor down in Texas. Um, we are really similar in a ton of ways, and we could not be more different in other ways. So if you like close your eyes and hear us talk, people say it's hard to tell us apart. Like when I'm at his church and I say something, they're like, that's exactly what your brother would say. And then when I'd say something like, I know it's crazy, they go, he always hero as well. I'm really, really, really grateful for him. And before that conversion moment, I'm four years smaller than my brother. Uh, he just beat the heck out of me most of my childhood. So we would get off the bus, take our backpacks off, walk in the house, and just start swinging, like every single day. Like I have surgeries and bones that don't quite work right because of my brother. There's like things on my body that remind me of my brother's tender affection and close care that I've experienced from him most of my life. So we, we're similar in a lot of ways. There's some rivalry in some ways, um, and, and then we're, we're super different. I, I really am thankful for him and I bear some scars from my, my brother. I bet you if you have a sibling, you have some kind of similar story, right? Things that you love, things you're grateful for, things that maybe are hard. This is not just like a, talking about Thanksgiving like from the pulpit. This is actually the backdrop of this book. If you struggle to understand Obadiah, it might help to know that a lot of what's going on here is in the backdrop of two brothers and their ongoing sibling rivalry. If you go in verse 1 here of Obadiah, you see that it's addressed to the nation of Edom. It's the only book like that in some of these prophets here where it's directed, addressed only to those other nations, not to God's people. It doesn't name God's people's sin. There's other books that do that all throughout this thing. But Obadiah is aimed at this older brother of God's people. So Esau and his descendants become Edom, and Jacob and his descendants become 
Israel. You see in verse 21, there's this Mount Zion, which is God's mountain, and then Mount Esau. There are these two kind of rivals, these two nations, these two brothers. To, to really understand the story, you got to go back into the book of Genesis, which is the story of origins. And what you see there is not one good brother and one bad brother. You see two twins that are a mess. They actually both have a lot of brokenness. They both um, have things about them that you would like not want to associate with, you want to distance yourself from. They both harm each other. The difference is that one trusts God and one doesn't trust God. Even the one who trusts God, Jacob himself, his name means deceiver. He struggles his whole life to figure out what it means to actually follow God with his whole heart. But, but he keeps falling forward towards God. And in contrast, his brother Esau despises God. There's a scene where he comes in from the field. He's been hunting and his little squirmy little brother, like little brothers are sometimes, trying to set him up to get him in trouble. He has this soup that he's made. And the brother Esau is starving, he says, and so he's willing to do anything to get this soup. And the little brother, in a deceptive way, says, well, if you give me your birthright, then I'll give you this soup. And it seems like a strange little story, but if you could just go inside that space, what you're talking about is one little bowl of sustenance in the moment for something that would actually last a lifetime, and Esau is willing to trade it. It says he actually despised his birthright. The same word shows up in verse 2, in this text. So you have Esau who's willing to give up what it meant for him to be this son who's in the family line. And then you have Jacob who, as squirmy as he is, as inconsistent as he is, as broken as he is, keeps falling towards God. So they have this rivalry. It actually goes from Genesis 25 all the way to chapter 36 of Genesis. That last chapter is this long genealogy of Esau. It's a, it's a major feature in the Bible. You'll see Edom and Esau all over the place. It's in the Psalms. It's in the prophets. You'll, you'll see it described in lots of ways. It, in some ways, it functions as a, an archetype to God's people. These two family lines, kind of two ways to live. And as you see the rivalry, you see moments where, where there's all kinds of extended brokenness. Years later, when God's people have been in Egypt, now we're talking like 400 years plus after these two brothers were alive, the descendants of Jacob, the people of Israel, are journeying out of Egypt and they want to pass through this land that belongs to Edom. And they ask if they could come through with passage. They say, we won't eat anything, we won't drink any of your water. All we want to do is just come through. Could you just do your brother a solid, essentially is what he says. And they're actually met with armies. Edom says, no, you can't come into our land. Holding this century-long grudge to things that happened in the past. So this rivalry is at play here in this book. And what you see is there's some event, and it's hard to date Obadiah. Some place it in the middle of the 8th century. Some place it in the middle of the 5th century. Either way, there's some event where God's people have been attacked. They should have been defended by their brother Edom, and instead they turned on him. And so you see places even like in Psalm 137, it's a famous, what's called an imprecation psalm, a kind of calling down a curse on somebody. This is the place where you have this really haunting and confusing, but maybe famous or infamous verse where, where the psalmist actually play, prays that, that God would dash their babies' heads against rocks. If you're familiar with that passage, that's Psalm 137, and, and it speaks of Edom. Here's verse 7 of that. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, 
the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundation. Would you destroy Jerusalem? O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed so be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed is the one who takes your children and ends their life. Okay, so that's the setting. This is intense. So my, my couple of like sprained ankles and black eyes and that got some cheap shots in as well. If you're growing up in Florida, we had these pine cones that hadn't quite opened up. And you could huck those things and then run like crazy. So I got some cheap shots in. So you have this like wounds back and forth between these two brothers. That's the space that this book is written into. Their, their hatred goes back a long, long time. And then to understand the book, then it's not just these two brothers and these two nations. You have to understand what they represent spiritually. It's God's covenant people and then those who are God's enemies. It's really two ways to live. One falling towards God in faith and one resisting Him. And like true younger brother fashion, what, what you do with an older sibling is you watch and you learn. Sometimes you set them up for failure, but you mostly watch and you learn. You watch where they make mistakes and where they blow it. So my brother got his first speeding ticket. He was grounded for like six months from his car, which in the 1980s when you had a Firebird was a big deal and your dad made you ride the school bus and you couldn't leave campus. You just like were grounded to like walking and the school bus. So I'm like, I don't know, 12 at the time watching that going, okay, speeding tickets, Bad. Like, I don't, want to do, I don't want to do that. I'm learning from that. But there's also moments where you watch your sibling get in trouble for things that they did to you. And that actually has this moment of, like, justice or, or vindication to it, right? Where, whereas a little sibling who's four years smaller than your older brother, who doesn't have a chance in an actual fight to see your parents swoop in and defend or discipline, that actually helps as well, right? So little brothers stand in spaces where they're learning from what their older sibling is doing that needs discipline and judgment, and they're being comforted when a parent, God the Father, swoops in to actually help. Have that in your mind as you engage this text, because it seems so strange just to call down curses on Edom. Remember, though, this is placed in the Minor Prophets in spaces where God has already declared judgment on His own people. It starts with the house of God. So this is not the first book of the Minor Prophets. It's, it's actually uh, several into it where you've seen God actually say to Jacob, again, who's not perfect, who deserves to be disciplined as well, that God's going to come and bring judgment on him as well. But as a little sibling, you're watching this situation and we get a chance to learn. So it's about Edom, but it's about you. There's a little bit of Edom in all of us. All of us have this space where we we struggle to trust God. We're willing to take things like bowls of soup metaphorically and exchange those for the spiritual blessings of what it meant to actually be God's children. So, so I want to walk through the text real quick in three movements. We'll talk about the deception of Edom, the destruction of Edom, and the destiny of God's people. So, so deception, destruction, and destiny. Look in verse 2. He says this, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. That's the same word speaking of this birthright that Esau turned away from. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Okay, the beginning verse here in verse 3 names 
pride as a root issue for Edom, for Esau. Pride is kind of a confusing thing for us. There's a good kind of pride, right? Pride in a job well done. Pride in, in working hard. Pride in accomplishing something that's meaningful. And then there's this razor's edge or this dotted line or this, this real easy step from that kind of pride to something that you would find identity in, hope in. You would find security in. You would esteem yourself better than others. You, you would actually put yourself in a class above other people. That's what's being talked about here. The pride of their heart, he says, has deceived you. And there's two kinds of deception. One is inner self-deception in verses 3 to 4. And then he's going to talk about being deceived by others in verse 7. So it helps a little bit to know some geography here. When he talks about you living in the clefts of the rock, he's speaking literally about where Edom was. It was set in these mountains. It was a, a fortress kind of city in the rocks. It had this kind of natural defense against other people. Now, now later, God would keep his promise. It would be overcome and destroyed. But, but as they saw themselves as almost impenetrable, pride set them up to think of themselves as, as independent, as someone who's self-sufficient, as somebody who actually has everything they need to care for themselves. Have, have you ever been there before? Have you ever felt like who you are, what you have, is simply enough? That you don't need other people, you don't need God. There's ways that you can actually take care of of yourself. There's a self-deception here. He talks about you seeing yourself as like, like laying down among the stars and, and soaring like an eagle. They're, they're over-esteeming who they are. And he says, it's deceived you. The pride in the way you see yourself has actually put you in a space where, where you're deceived about your own power, about your own abilities. Because things are going well, because you seem to be in a space of security, you misinterpret that as something that actually sets your heart up to resist God himself. Pride puts you in a place where you stiff arm God. And what's so crazy about it is you take the blessings of God that he has given you and you use those very things and flip them back to say, this is why I don't need you. I've got a great job. I've got a great marriage. I've got great kids. I'm doing great as a single person. I'm my retirement's going really well. All the blessings that are from God, you actually take those and use them to shield yourself against God. They, they have a deceptive nature to them, he says. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we read. And so in this space, he's calling them, even warning them about this deception as an invitation towards repentance. He says it's about your heart. It's how you see yourself. It's how you see the world around you. Well, there's a self-deception and there's also the deception of other people, of other things that you place your hope in. So verse 7 says, All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who ate your bread, your friends, the ones you shared table with, have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Your desire to depend on other people to manage those relationships, to think, well, if I just align myself with this situation, this person, this, this company, this political party, if I put myself in this neighborhood, if I put myself in these places, then, then I'll finally be okay. We trust in other things as much as we trust in ourselves. And he's saying there's a kind of deception there as well. They had trusted in other nations. They'd allied against God's people with other nations. And what will happen is God will use those nations to actually then bring down Edom. There's a deception to trusting in something else. 
Where are you making alliances? Where are you saying, man, if I just had this or if I can hold on to this or because I have this, therefore I'm okay. Is it your health? Is it your job? Is it your family background? Is it where you went to school? Is it your potential earning situation? Is it the dating relationship that you're in? Is it your relationship with your grandkids? Like, like where are you finding hope and something that says, I'm okay because of this? Where are you making alliances? This passage would caution us. Little, little brother, look on at older brother and see there's a deception to self-trust. And remember, the goal here is to put yourself in this book. We've been saying, if you put yourself in the book, then their warnings can be your warnings and their hope then can also be your hope. And so I wonder if you see yourself as prideful. We have lots of versions of this. There's lots of ways that we would express this. I actually was devastated to think about in my own life, like when you do some certain personality profiles, the way that I'm wired, pride is a besetting sin of mine. And it's this backwards way of overesteeming how well I care for people. And there's a weird step from that to being prideful to then being a martyr to then comparing myself to then getting angry. It's this really twisted, weird thing. Because pride parasitically attaches to anything that's good in your life. And takes something that you should praise God for, should thank God for, and now makes it a place of your own identity. So, so my, mine is a weird, twisted version. I wonder what yours is. Where does pride show up for you? Is it, is it pride in your work? And not just in doing a good job, but in working harder than other people? Is that where it shows up? Does it show up in, in the way you can read a room and your intuition? Are you prideful of your people skills and how you engage? Are you prideful in your high capacity? The way you're able to juggle so many things, take care of so many people and situations morally because of your strong sense of right and wrong. Do you take pride in that? Or do you have your space where you, you feel so independent that when someone challenges you or, or needs something from you, or you actually need them, does that, does that flare up some weird expression of pride? Is it in how much you understand? Is it in your, your mental capacities? Is it in ways that you actually engage with, with other people where you've distanced yourself in some sort of island where, where you don't need people? Do you take pride in the fact that other people are needy? Proud as other people are proud. Are, are you proud of ways that you actually see other shame is the underside of pride that that I'm better than someone else is a quick step to I should be better than I am and shame comes sneaking in really fast pride says you've got it all figured out pride keeps you from being curious about other people or curious about your own situation where you need to grow and pride gives rise to lots of other things there's a list from a Puritan he names things like covetousness and ungodly ambition and boasting and contention and unthankfulness and selfishness and self-deceit, a judgmental attitude, gossip, complaining, hypocrisy. All of those things are like the children of pride. It's the offspring of pride. And if I didn't name your specific thing and you're taking pride in that, that might be the deal. There are places where this haunts all of us. And so when the scriptures say things that... the God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's a word to all of us. And again, there's a little bit of Edom in all of us. 
So I just invite you to ask, like, where are you overesteeming yourself? Where are you overesteeming the situation around you? Where are you trusting other people, other things outside when you should place that trust solely on God? There's a deception there. And there's an invitation in Scripture to, to look at something like this and find ourselves there. So if you're taking notes, Hebrews chapter 12 cautions us not to be like Esau, not to be like his descendants, Edom. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 17. Listen to this. He says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, or for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Okay, so a book about pride and about the sibling rivalry invites you to place yourself in that story and to examine your own heart. Because if you will, then the God of all humility and grace, who promises to forgive us of our pride, can move towards you. Pride will keep you stiff-arming God, saying, I don't need you. Humility opens up your heart and your arms to say, oh my gosh, I'm desperate without you. Again, the difference between Esau and Jacob is not that Jacob was amazing and Esau wasn't. Jacob is a scoundrel, but he keeps falling towards God. He keeps wrestling with God. He keeps knowing that he needs God. Okay, so the deception of Edom. As an invitation, little brothers, to look over the shoulder and ask, hey, where might that be true of me? Learn from the warning in that space. Because the next movement is to destruction. He says in verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, the, the Lord. <laughs> Let me. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and the understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Okay, there's this deception that he names, and now he names a destruction that's coming, and you think, like, dang, that's huge. Why? Why this destruction? And in verse 10, he tells us, because this is the reason why. This is the reason why they deserve to be judged by God. And remember, watch their warning and put yourself there to learn as well. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off for forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should have stood with your brother. You should have protected God's people. You should have come to aid those who were in need. And instead, you cheered and you joined in. Verse 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother. This day of their destruction, this day of their pain, the day where things went bad for Jacob, don't gloat over that day over your brother. Have you been there, siblings? When they get in trouble and maybe you were a part of it, but they're the ones who got caught and there's this smirk grin on your face. Well, 10x that in this space. This is not just a parent discipline. This is a whole nation coming to ruin. He says, don't gloat over that day, the day of their misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Don't loot his wealth. Don't take his stuff. Don't take advantage of his vulnerability in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads 
to cut off his fugitives. Do not stand over his survivors in the day of distress. This history tells us that there's moments where Edom should have stood with Jacob to defend, and instead they turned on him. Continuing out this prideful rebellion and this sibling rivalry in ways that actually lead to their destruction. I tried to emphasize it as I read, but if you look in verses 11 to 14, it references the day like 10 times. The day of trouble, the day that things went bad, the day of, of their hurt and their suffering that's caused by their brother. In this space, it invites us to examine like the days that are hard, the days of pain, the days of misfortune, the days that feel like ruin. And this is now that movement where you watch an older brother get punished or disciplined and it has this like, okay, I'm not alone or I don't have to protect myself by myself or there's somebody bigger and stronger than me who will actually deal with this injustice. The day here in this text is a day of great pain for God's people. It's the day when everything falls apart. It's a day when, when they actually find themselves at the very bottom. And he's saying in that space, Edom, don't, don't rejoice over that destruction and it's a way of actually saying to God's people, hey, I see that day. I know the day that you were gloated over. I know the day that everything got stolen from you. I know the day of your calamity, and I care about it. Part of these prophets, as they name the dysfunction and the judgment, is to just validate the sin and brokenness, to say, hey, that, that's wrong. It shouldn't be like that. This long list for these four verses gives God's people comfort that in their pain, and this would be like hundreds of years of pain, this would be generational brokenness and pain, and then it turns to this destiny for God's people. So this day that's been terrible that Edom has caused, now we see in verse 15, uh, beginning to reverse this. For there was that day of distress, but for the day of the Lord, a different day, a day of the Lord is near, a day of rescue, a day of hope, a day of, of judgment, a day of reconciliation, a day of restoration. It's near upon not just now Edom or in Israel, but on all the nations. I said there's a little bit of Edom in all of us. Actually, if you were to take in the Hebrew, the letters that make up the word Edom are the same letters that make up the word Adam or man. It's representative of, of, of humanity. The day of the Lord is near upon all of humanity. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. He's saying God is a God of retributive justice. God's the kind of God who lets no sin go unpunished. He's the kind of God who sees everything. And the day of the Lord becomes great hope for God's people. It means that God will finally deal with the injustice that God's people have suffered. But the complexity of that is that God's people have also done injustice. So we find ourselves now in a jam for God to be just and to be judging those who do sinful things and harm people is both a comfort to us for where we've been harmed and it's an indictment to us where we have harmed others. And so this day of the Lord stands in Scripture as this kind of fork in the road. It goes back to the pain of the last days, the days of judgment, the days of, of dysfunction, and it looks forward to that final day. The New Testament will pick this up and say that that day actually is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings about this final day of the Lord. It's God's desire to see things restored and renewed. And he's saying, I will do justice. The things that have happened, the things you've done by those things, will this 
judgment be returned onto your head. Verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, speaking of the cup of God's wrath, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. It's actually now speaking of restoration in verses 19 to 21. Speak of God restoring things. Much like in Joel, the the years the locusts have eaten, God promises to actually restore on that day. And in fact, actually, there's a quote in Joel from part of Obadiah 17. It's the same passage that Peter will quote in Acts 2 to speak of the Holy Spirit who's come to actually bring about final armed to hear the good news that God cares, that He sees that he's going to do something about that, would give them hope. We're motivated in the New Testament by the day of the Lord towards holiness. Because when you feel like things have been unjustly done to you, pride sneaks in and says again, you deserve better, you deserve to soothe, you deserve to get vengeance, you deserve something different. And instead of that entitlement, what the Scriptures do is inserts the idea that God is in control and will make all things right. The day of the Lord becomes this buffer between our own distress and what we think we need by grabbing with our own hands our own self-protection. To say, no, God is the one who actually will provide for me. It's a judgment of the past and it's hope for the future. And it's secure. Jesus promises to bring about this day. And the question then becomes like, well, how will this happen? How will this day happen? Take place, And you know, if you're familiar with the New Testament, when Jesus comes in the scene as the promised Messiah, they think it's going to be a political army that's now going to come and just wreak havoc on Rome and on the Edomites and on everybody else who's left. God, all of God's enemies were finally going to get what they deserved through physical means. What we see in the good news of the Messiah, though, is that he came to actually deal with physical ritual. And something on the outside wouldn't deal with it. It had to be something on the inside. Our biggest problem is on the inside and we need help from the outside. So, so scriptures say that Jesus came into our world to bear the weight of this judgment upon himself. He, he bore the weight of this judgment upon himself so that you and I could stand in spaces where we weren't just struck down. Where God could restore and we not be on the opposite side of his judgment because Jesus takes the judgment for us. This idea of drinking this cup is really fascinating. Go go to verse 16 for just a second. It says, For you have drank on my holy mountain, so that all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. Can you hear the judgment there? I'm going to put this cup of wrath in front of them. They're going to drink it for forever. They're going to drink it continually. And they're going to drink it, and they're going to swallow it, And they're going to be as if they had never been. This will be total wrath. God will bring down His judgment upon them. And as you think about the way this cup gets described to other places, it's called the cup of God's wrath, the the just judgment for the sin that we deserve. And now we think about Jesus coming on the scene. If you're familiar with the Bible, go to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked that this cup would pass from Him. Everybody in that moment would have this cup in their mind. Jesus Jesus knew what he was about about to go go through. It wasn't just physical on the cross. He was about to drink the judgment of God's people all the way down to the very bottom as he paid the penalty for their sin. 
to make a way for their destiny to actually be secure. The problem we have with our own injustice and needing justice, Jesus dealt with by taking our sin upon himself. He, he actually drank this cup all the way to the bottom. And I told you that these, these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, represent kind of two, two kinds of people, two, two ways of being. And when we come on the scene in the book of Matthew, what we see is that Herod is an Edomite. Herod who tries to kill all the babies to snuff out the Messiah coming. He's an Edomite. He's from this line of the ones who actually have resisted God. And Jesus comes as a descendant of Jacob, as true Israel comes on the scene as one who would actually now make all things right. God kept His promise through different wars and plagues and judgment physically for sure, but ultimately spiritually He kept it by dying in our place to fulfill the promises that we most desperately needed. Even these ideas of the, the land being restored, which is super complicated for us right now as we watch Israel and Gaza and try to figure out what do we make of those events. But the rest of the scripture tells us that the, the land promises expand to the whole world. God, God actually wants to do something broader and bigger. So the restoration is actually about God's kingdom coming. Look in verse 21. He says, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion. This is God's holy mountain. To rule Mount Esau, that's the, the place of rebellion and sin. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The day of the Lord comes and secures God's just judgment over the entire world. He rules and reigns. One scholar said this is a way of praying in the Old Testament the Lord's Prayer, that your kingdom would come, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is the one who made it possible for us to actually step into a space where we could receive. Pride will have you stiff arm, even that sacrifice, that gift. But humility will let you receive and say, oh, I'm hopeless without this. Jesus drank the cup that you deserve so you could be set free. And then as we think about communion, he offers this to you regularly to remind you of his love and grace and goodness, how he purchased this for you. Jesus says at that last supper, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I drink it with you in the final days, in the, in the new kingdom. It's a promise. Every time we take communion, the reason why we do it every single week is to remind ourselves that what God did for us on the cross is the deposit on all that we needed in the future. Our destiny is tied up in the fact that He shed His blood, that He drank our cup, and He now extends to you this cup of the new covenant, which is the blessing of God to forgive you of your very sins. Here's the deal, friends. If you're a follower of Jesus, when you take communion, you're celebrating the fact that instead of you having to drink continually, this cup of wrath, Jesus drank it for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, communion confronts you. The Bible says you're going to drink from a cup. There's only two cups. One is this cup of wrath that you justly deserve. The other one is this cup of the new covenant where Jesus said, my broken body and shed blood is making a way for you to be forgiven and set free. There's only two cups. A cup of God's wrath and this cup of the new covenant where he forgives. He makes all this possible through his own self-sacrifice. So I want to just ask you to engage communion now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're trusting Christ's righteousness, what he did on the cross to be the one, to, the, the way to forgive you of all your sin, I would invite you to come and take communion with, 
joy. Be sober-minded of what you deserved and what Jesus took on your behalf, but then be nourished and released to celebration and thankfulness because he did do it for you and he promises to return. To the point that you're deceptively saying, that's right, I'm a self-made woman, I'm a self-made man, I will take care of myself. Can you understand where we started the deception that pride has for you? You will only be crushed by that. You can't withstand that. To drink of God's wrath continually would crush you. So Jesus was crushed in your place so you could have hope. That's his invitation to you from the book of Obadiah. It's his invitation to you from, from the scriptures. And it's what we celebrate as we take communion. Would you, would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? Again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that will give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray and ask for God's help. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and take communion. Whether this is your home church or not, if you're trusting in Jesus, come and celebrate what he did for you. We tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. There'll be servers that are Christian. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus. You can have been here for 60 years and you can go get prayer this morning. So there'll be someone back there who would love to pray for you. I just want to invite you to respond this morning. Let me pray and then we'll body and shed blood. We want to be nourished by that. We want to remember that. We want to have our hearts stirred towards that would you fill the room with joy because of what you did to to help to rescue to save to bear the weight of our sin i pray that gravity would release us to joy in this moment in jesus name amen hey come when you're ready